0: And welcome to the 100th episode of the Dicer Screaming Podcast. That's right, an operatic opener. Yeah, because it's a special occasion. It's our 100th, 100th Ma- anniversary. Yep, and we are the Dicemen. I'm Randy. I am Mike. And together we're going to be your hosts tonight on a magical journey. A magical journey, yes, that's right. So it's our 100th episode, so. We're just going to open up and talking about, like, doing a hundred of these podcasts has been a real treat, and we hope you enjoy. We do have tens of followers. Tens. Of followers.
1: <laughs> Our vast throng of tens. Ah, we We've got enough to, I don't know, I mean, if they we were all gathered together, we could probably conquer a 7-Eleven. Yeah.
0: We might be able to take over a junior high. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. That's what we do here at the Dicey Screaming Plot <laughs> yeah. to Take Over oh. Your Eyes and we're, Stage D and D Games.
1: We're so many uh, thirty and forty year olds uh, that we could staff a junior
0: <laughs> Yeah, that's probably more what would happen. <laughs> I call English teacher. Damn it! I wasn't grabbing the good ones. All right, history teacher. Oh, good
1: man. All right, you would be well suited for that.
0: <clears throat> so, in doing a hundred episodes, I. Uh, probably do that we genuflect upon what we've done in the past which has been a lot of nonsense and buffoonery. We bow at it.
1: Yep. Alright, well let's give a nod to it then. Yes, there there has been a lot of foolery of Toms.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe Joe's and John's and Jack's and uh, Jill's but... Uh, fool me once, shame on me.
1: Fool me twice. No, no, it's a shame on you then shame on me. Yeah. Pool me twice. Shame, shame on, on me. me. No, uh... We are <laughs> nigh-professional tomfools.
0: Yes. <laughs> I, I, I will uh, gratefully accept that. Oh, But um, we hope the next 100 episodes that you'll stick around. And, of course, uh, we hope that you've enjoyed what we've done. And uh, so tonight's episode is a little special. It's a topic that we enjoy because probably some of us wouldn't be here enjoying this without this one person. And if you think it's Gygax, well, I've heard some people asking me about that question during the week in the lead into this. Uh, it's not Gygax. No,
1: no, it is not. Although, certainly deserved the uh, you know, examination that uh, we, we gave Mr. Gygax uh, right around the time of, you know, there was a little... Yeah. We had a, a session in which we, we discussed him. Very important figure, so is uh, Dave Arneson and a number of others. Exactly. Uh, but in many respects, they were all drawn from the same clique of thoughtful, like-minded gamers working with miniatures who came under the spell. The, uh, something enamored them. An idea crept into their minds At about the same time in the uh, late 60s. And voila, a notion was spawned. Indeed. Now, we're grateful to all of those persons involved, but we're going to talk about the notion spawner.
0: Right. The Wellspring. So we'll leave you in stitches, we're going to go do our advertisement, pay the bills, and then we'll be right back. So stick around. All right, and we're back after that little brief interlude. Thanks for uh, listening in and, of course, sticking around for our topic. So what is it we kept you in suspense this long? Do I get the big reveal? You
1: do. A hundred episodes totally merits an exceptionally important subject. And it's going to be something truly beloved to us. J.R.R. Tolkien, The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, and... Aside from the man and the books, uh, the impact on gaming itself. The Silmarillion. The Silmarillion, yes. The
0: Silmarillion, yes.
1: Uh, These are practically uh, the origin point for D&D. And obviously some effort has been made by the old staff of TSR to point out very clearly that that was not the only influence, that there were scores of them. And we agree entirely that was not, exactly, yeah. that is not fictional, that is absolutely true. We've referenced a lot of literature in past episodes that point blank had huge impacts on the ev- evolution of Dungeons & Dragons. But we always reference the very origins of wargaming where... As the enormous popularity of the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit uh, and the Silmarillion came into play right about that like 19... well I mean obviously they were published in the 50s in the US uh, but it took a long while for the last of it to really sink in. So by the time you got to the 1960s and thereabouts uh, it had saturated into the culture long enough be stuck in the minds of an entire younger generation of war gamers—the people playing with those miniatures at those tables, measuring out where their Napoleonic troops go. You know, would be moving to next. Those were the clicks of people who suddenly said, "Well, why couldn't we make this army of the orcs and that army of the elves?" And all of a sudden, something started Whoa. happening.
0: Yeah, it did take off, man. That's. Pretty much how it was is that people became kind of bored with the same old Napoleonic Waterloo creation, recreations on the tabletop, and so they thought to spice things up by the Battle of the Five Armies.
1: Yeah, what an epic, splendid event for a wargamer to undertake. Five separate armies uh, having to symbolize and represent a wide variety of things that had never graced a wargaming table before. It hadn't been done to that point, which necessitated assigning statistical values to a great deal of things that had never been assigned statistical values before. Uh, it's one thing to assign statistical values to, well, you know, what is the what are the qualities of an army of Hessians based on the historical references we can draw from their performance in the field uh, in the late 1700s versus, for instance, a group of British redcoats. Right. You know, uh, and even though they're, you know, theoretically fighting on the same side, uh, you know, what is the difference between their mobility and, you know, uh, logistics and the Continental Army? Uh, examining that kind of minute detail is in the nature of gamers. It is. It is our curse and our blessing.
0: Right. And from that came the idea in Chainmail to include fantasy army lists. And, of course, Chainmail being pretty much more medieval, oh, very, than the typical Napoleonics and uh, Pike and Shot type of renaissance games. The idea of putting a treant or a a group of werebears on the table gave different challenges. And then, of course, putting magic users, wizards and evil high priests and all that, you know, that began to change the dynamic of how war games were played. Fireballs and lightning bolts maybe a little different than, or no different than cannons, but a little different in their execution. You know, concentrate on a single figure, sure, you know, yep, that's fine. But maybe they're tougher, maybe they're better protected, and all that. You know, all these rules and fanciful notions came to fore and helped create D&D. Now, of course, like Mike said, there are many other authors that we can mention, uh, you know, Morcock, oh, obviously goodness. with his law and ca- versus chaos and uh, soul sucking, intelligent evil swords, and all this other stuff, and his ability to travel the cosmos and the multiplanar dimensions. Was, oh,
1: sure. I... Uh,
0: Robert E. Howard with Conan, of course, and even Solomon Kane.
1: Oh well, yes, the Puritan adventurer. Yep. Ah, yeah, bound by his own ruthless code compensating for you know, the vile acts he committed as a mercenary in the service of England mm-hmm. uh, you know, laying aside the entirety of his like, allegiances and loyalties to follow his own truth uh. and reject the imposition of you know, pitiless, vicious dogmas over top of people. Uh, very important distinctions in, in those but, but that is a collection of other people so let's talk the guy, J.R.R. R. Tolkien, uh, most commonly known as Ronald. Yep. Uh, going by, actually, his third name in that J.R.R.
0: It's Jonathan Ronald Rutherford. Uh, Real. Real. That's it. Real. Thank you.
1: Uh, which I believe was descended out of his Germanic ancestors. Uh, it was the only nod given to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Ronald was the most common name by which he was called, uh, especially at the time that uh, he met his wife. and Which, hey, fascinatingly, uh, she must have really liked him, okay, because they got married when he was a broke nobody. Right. Uh, and he was off to war, and there was a really high likelihood that, you know, uh, if she married him right on the spot, that she would just be a war widow like six months later. Uh, World War One, of course,
0: we're speaking of right, and the Great Conflict helped shape and come, come up in, in his novels, uh, especially *The Hobbit*, there and *Back Again*.
1: Yeah, do you remember where Sam Gamgee, you know, is the real hero there, that like carries him the the rest of the way because Frodo, uh, you know, just couldn't make it any further; He's too worn out. Uh, there was a moment in World War One where uh, the principal reason that he lived to the end of the war, he fell ill, uh, principally due to trench conditions, uh, being riddled with lice and other vermin. Uh, and he got trench fever, which was what they called it at the time. Uh, just one of an outlandish variety of ailments that can afflict you when you live in horrifying conditions for months. Uh, and the fever finally got so bad that his his own troops uh, carried him to an aid station and turned him in for medical treatment because he was delirious and just wouldn't quit. Uh, and he spent the majority of the war doing less dangerous tasks and so he wound up living. Uh, but his time at the front, it was those little people, those, those people who were not wealthy or powerful or famous, uh, who didn't come from you know, the British concept of noble stock Uh, it was those ordinary folks that absolutely saved his bacon Uh, there was no forgetting of that for the remainder of his days Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, and Sam Sam Gamgee is an embodiment of that incredibly loyal uh, you know ceaselessly dedicated uh,
0: common man here to see it out to the very end.
1: Yep, there and back again, mm-hmm. whatever
0: it takes. Yep, a <laughs> hobbit's holiday. And so, after the war, he became a professor of linguistics. He was also a theologian.
1: Yes, uh, he was a Catholic and a noted theologian later on. Uh, but it was principally, uh, he was technically raised initially a Protestant, Uh And when his mother passed, at a comparatively young age, they were entrusted to the care of a priest, uh, because she was a Catholic um, Mm -hmm. convert, uh, for which her family disowned her. I mean, they they cut her out, ended all support uh, for her conversion. And so, while he was raised in a mixed religion household, uh, you know... He was, the final years of his being raised were, you know, under the auspices of a priest. Uh, And, you know, they had lengthy theological discussions, uh, which eventually led to him having a really clear view of his faith, uh, because he had explored all the parameters of it and really made his own conclusions at one point or another. Uh, but there he was, off to being a professor after the war, in uh, his first major breakthrough, uh, which really didn't get a lot of credit for it at first because it was not immediately published. He translated Beowulf at, like, what, the age of 22 or so?
0: Yeah, they had an archaeological dig that turned up a Viking burial mound with a copy of it.
1: And it matched the extant copies that were available. Well, not extant. Uh, the very limited number of written copies, because this is a Bronze Age, dated uh, word of mouth level event, there were very few handwritten copies anywhere to be found. So to have this copy dug up uh, and then have it turn out to nearly identically match uh, the other existing copies, well, you know, it, it made it clear that in a very ancient age, this was a story that was widely circulated enough in multiple languages yeah. and retained its exact yep. shape and intent. The, yeah, the, the elements that were constituent to that story all remained intact. And that is something. I mean, it, it's not as exciting to some people as it is to linguists and fans of mythology. Uh, but it was a pretty big... Yeah, wasn't a it more
0: thing. Iron Age, though, than Bronze Age?
1: Much more. There are elements, okay. much like in uh, the Cattle Raid of Kuli or Tainville Kuli, uh, there are elements that date back potentially as far as the Bronze Age, but uh, it came into its primary form in the Iron Age.
0: Yeah, this one was from, I believe, the ninth th- century is when they could closely determine it. And most of the translations had been made into uh, the new languages of the lands post-Latin and this was one that was raw because most of these stories were translated through priests and and monks
1: well worth mentioning I mean obviously those articles of information that were available in the Mediterranean uh, survived because they were the most widespread okay that Uh, at the peak of Greek and Roman literature, you know, these were things that there were so many connections to so many other countries throughout the Mediterranean that, uh, as Christianity spread and the keeping of scriptoriums and uh, Mm of monks, uh, that those reservoirs of people copying handwritten books generation after generation to keep them alive, uh, Preserved a lot of knowledge. So they got kind of a preferable first treatment, and a huge portion of Northern European history was completely lost because it was not given that same treatment. Right. Uh, It was pagan and therefore heretical and therefore destroyed or allowed to simply lapse into,
0: you know, uh, absence. Yeah, Uh, it was a few uh, Nordic monks who took the time to uh, translate the tales into more. You, uh, a more translatable and uh, d- enduring language like Latin, but the one Beowulf that was copied, I think, in Norway that was compared to was, uh, was very, very similar. But yeah, he knew a lot of languages and uh,
1: invented his own even at an early age. Oh, also worth mentioning, I mean, this was a, a guy who, in his teens, uh, was already experimenting with inventing languages. Uh, I should mention. Uh, On a Tolkien-related note, it was a good friend of mine, uh, Professor Laura Rausch, who is a true polyglot, uh, and even at an early age uh, spoke multiple languages. She, when we were just kids, uh, could read and write in Elvish and Dwarvish uh, Mm. from Tolkien's books. Uh, She had taken the time out, mastered the languages as they were written, in the books, and you know could could both read and write adeptly in them, <laughs> which really told you just how smart she was as like that twelve and thirteen year old all right that not even kidding uh, i always I always knew that uh, that was a mark of brilliance because uh, I get muddled down when it comes to other languages. she clearly did not,
0: and you know token had a unique grasp on history and culture of the northern european lore you know from the finnish finnish it is, of uh and um, uko and Lemminkainen,
1: you know. as uh, it's been anglicized uh the herr the Herbarar. yes uh, the Herbarar. the niblung uh, niblung lead uh so the the epics of Lemminkainen, beowulf uh and other yeah, well and I'm sure he was more than passingly familiar with the tang Bo uh, which has always been a favorite of mine
0: yeah besides uh, the the classical Arthurian and uh, oh those is Roland what? He read them all
1: oh, which you yeah, know avid reader a guy was hyper literate and yeah, you can see where a lot of it poured into his story.
0: Yeah, you know, you had the black language of Mordor, besides just the high elevation, then there was different forms of expression in Numorian, And, oh yes, the Numenorians. Yes. And their ancestors, the Dunedain, are offspring. So there was, this guy just, you know, he went crazy with the languages because it was a hobby. And, you know, he put attention to detail into these, but he never really felt like anybody would really appreciate it. So, as he began to craft a way to tell this and express it, he began to use very... Uh, well, I don't want to simplify it too much, but very standard archetypes of the elves as beings of light and keepers of nature and its laws, and also the dwarves with their mysterious and somewhat inward-thinking ways that became archetypical of what we now enjoy in Dungeons and Dragons and other games. And it is to the purpose that he was a linguist creating a world to tell a story in. And so his stories have a lot of antecedents in others. And I think, to his credit, he was very humble because he didn't consider that he created anything whole cloth. He was actually copying what had actually come before.
1: Yeah, it was his friends. Uh, in the Well, he was in the same literary circle of friends as C.S. Lewis. Right. Who, of course, Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe and the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, they had their little disputes here and there where... Uh, Tolkien thought he was a little too heavy-handed with the religious allegories, mm-hmm. and preferred a much lighter hand, you know, a much more distant approach to it. Uh, and with his uh, Maillard and uh, yeah. and so on, you know, they were somewhat more veiled, uh, much less heavy-handed than, you know, oh, lion Jesus. Um,
0: yeah. And also the allegories to uh, Arthur and Aragorn. The king returns and the land thrives under the thriving of the white tree. Yeah. that he, uh, approaches Gondor.
1: That there is a connection between the king and the land. And, you know, when the, the king is away or, you know, foul, uh, everything withers. Uh, and when the king is there and has his A-game on, everything... Blooms, yeah. You know, just not very subtle, but you know, it's it's a classic British myth, going back to the Arthurian area. So and it even
0: was repeated in Charlemagne. Also, yes, it's true. I mean, although that, Charlemagne is more historical than fantastical, yeah, fantastical. Ah. Uh, it is worth noting that uh, Charlemagne did become more legendary and mythologized as time went on. Psst.
1: Dirty secret: if you pay close attention to the mythologies of the world. Uh, and you look at everybody's neighbors. You tend to notice the same themes getting repeated, because whenever anybody who tells a story gets something good in the mix, the other storytellers go, "Oh man, I am totally taking that." <laughs> oh, pushed away on a reed boat and uh, rescued by uh, different people and raised among them as one of their own, oh boy, I, you know, like that—that is just awesome. I am totally <laughs> taking that one. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, rain for 40, a giant flood wipes everything out and just a tiny handful of people that survive uh, on a boat oh man, I gotta tell my version of that Uh, because, you know, that myth starts off with uh, I believe what was it, Uh, Sumerian uh, Epic of Gilgamesh Uh, it was Utnapishtim, not Noah Uh, and then of course, you know more than a thousand years later we, we see the story of a guy building a boat, surviving a flood and mm-hmm. uh, you know having special wisdom uh, and that is a guy now we call it Noah but <laughs> long before that they called it something else and it it took millennia for us to dig up and eventually find these other stories uh, that correspond which tells you that the same powerful archetypes occur In mythology all the time. They come back over and over again because they're things we connect to in a Joseph Campbell, Heart of Darkness uh, kind of way. They're things that humanity has an automatic response to. Uh, We empathize. It evokes a reaction in us. And so we come back to the well again and again. And Tolkien got the same effect from it. He He looked upon these things and, you know, found them way worth including that this is what makes an epic myth. It must be in here. Uh, Temptation.
0: Yeah, embodied in an item or a construct and embodied in his story in a ring, a single, simple gold ring. Not embellished with jewels or ornamentation, except what fire can show, but (laughs) powerful. And, of course, right back to the Ring Nebula Galid. And also the uh, classical tales of... Well, let's also not... Let's go back to Komodo on this one for its European translations. Many uh, items out of the Arthurian tales. Rings of power that would you know, bend others to will. But have this strange kind of glamour because they're from another realm. A fae item. That you have to be very careful how you use it. Rings of invisibility and all that. Every ring of power, yeah, in comes, the Arthurian tales, comes with a price.
1: Yeah, that there, there is always you know there is no free lunch, kids. Uh, everything comes with a little tag attached. Going, nope. eh, you know, if you use this sparingly, you might get out with your butt intact.
0: But if you abuse this. Mm-hmm. Uh You will forever disappear into the realm of fate with the Ring of Invisibility. So, there you go, you know. There are some things that you can say, well, you know, as he used to say, well, don't look too closely at the bones boiled to make the soup. What he was really saying was, like, there's a lot of things that went into this that are pretty, you know, common knowledge if you delve deep enough into history, which should be apparent, but... He was kind of self-effacing in that, because, well, he was borrowing from history, he wasn't creating whole cloth, but he wove it together in his own creation, in Middle-earth. And we only get to see a little bit of Middle-earth, but what do we see of Middle-earth? We see ancient kingdoms scattered all about, the ruins of which yeah. uh, haunt the landscape, they dot it all, you know.
1: Living amidst the ruins of Aman, something that Amaras. was much greater than yourselves. Uh, like a diminished age, yeah. so to speak, where once upon it, and remember this is kind of a post-Roman, post-Egyptian thing, where the great civilizations of North Africa and the Mediterranean spread outwards and brought basically you know roads and hygiene and everything else with them, uh, and then the Dark Ages hit and everything contracted inwards and. You know, there was a long spell where people were living next to, like, thousand-year-old, well, in many cases, more like then, 500-year-old, you know, aqueducts of stunning complexity and quality with no idea how to maintain them or rebuild them, nothing. They had no, all of it was lost. All of that wisdom, all of that knowledge, all of that engineering skill was largely gone. And so they're just living besides
0: all of of this greatness. Like the Tower of London is said to be built on the very tower that Caesar, when he first visited Britain, constructed.
1: Yeah, actually, as I was wandering through the financial district in London uh, about seven or eight years ago, uh, they were digging up Roman ruins uh, in the park across the street. Mm. And I was just floored. I was like, my God. You know, that's a real reminder that uh, unlike uh, some places, this isn't like several hundred years of history. Uh, This is, you know, several thousand years of history.
0: Yeah, the Isles of Scarabray.
1: Oh, yeah, the Isle of Scarabray. And, uh, you know, there are multiple invasion periods of England where... Differing cultures uh, had taken the upper hand for a moment, Uh, whether it was the uh, Anglo-Saxon era where (laughs) the Normans Normans uh, conquered the Anglo-Saxons or the invasion of the Danes, uh, who certainly left their mark upon the place uh, Hmm. to this day with the legal systems that they brought along with them uh, because they had a rather unique uh, legal structure that can, elements of it can still be found in British law today, uh, less so in the United States and like the descended countries that.
0: Yeah, there's still some traces, a little echo here.
1: Little little hints and whiffs, but uh, it was it was more telling uh, right there on the spot, uh, up until the the age of uh, Parliament uh, having right. more relevance than yeah. kings, but in any case darn you Magna Carta <laughs> darn you right to hell uh, well those combined eras those, that mishmash of like a couple of thousand years of uh, differing uh, customs and traditions brought a lot of different myth oaths mm-hmm. along with them in every single case and Mr. Tolkien was familiar with almost all of them
0: yeah, what it is to, you know, also that he brung to Middle-earth was a love of nature. Now, you could really tell from the detail of his writing. I mean, the fact that he made living trees a sentient, powerful force that was slumbering often. But you could feel it's their presence. Yeah, like forest was not to be taken lightly because the trees were alive. And they're eating children, but... <laughs> no. <laughs> no, they're, uh... Yeah, you do not uh, take axes lightly into the Bangor. <laughs> oh,
1: Lord, uh, Ring of the Shithulu? No, 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 the trees are not alive at eating children. But uh, Bangor and Forest and others, uh, it all represented the land having a connection to people, having a consciousness that was almost uniquely its own and being aware at some primeval level uh, of what's going on. you're not it. welcome here. Yeah, this is not your
0: place. <laughs> and so... I always got the impression that he was very cognizant of nature in its grandeur and its need to be protected. Now, I'm not going to put too much of a fine point on this, but to say that the fourth character in The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit is Middle-earth itself. Its landscape, the Mirkwood, the Fangorn, all those places are different and unique. Yes, of course, they have spiders. Spiders feature well because... According to popular uh, lore about Professor Token, he uh, was bitten by a spider you know, while, uh, uh, while I in South Africa while he was a young man. I and, have not read that.
1: Oh my God!
0: Yeah, that uh, that you know, big old hairy spider, South African spider. Oh wow! And uh, he grew rather, rather sick from it. Of course, like most things from that era, you know, you, know, you either endured it or you didn't, or perished.
1: Oh, man.
0: So that might explain the uh, cops and uh, spiders in the Mirkwood as well as Sheob. Oh, it might indeed.
1: Well, as we're, we've been covering the man, uh, and we should kick over to the books proper and yeah. really focus on that next, but I do want to close with a topic about the man himself. Uh, there has been much ballyhooed about the inherent racism of the existence of orcs, Uh, and of J.R.R. Tolkien himself, and I, I gotta say, there is a small grain of truth to this in the sense that almost every single individual of any degree of education was tainted to some degree or another by the popular sentiments of the day, okay? So, you know, this is not like there was some rare isolated text that was super racist and only a tiny handful of people read it uh, and were tainted by it and then espoused its views cheerfully. No. It's not chronology it folks. Yeah, it was universal. And the lesson here is that even the universal attitudes today, which we consider to be the most enlightened that have ever happened, are probably going to be looked, at, looked back on in about 50 years as being ludicrous, uh, vile, and repugnant.
0: Or even, at the very least, provincial. Yeah. Or naive.
1: And that's like the highest-minded thoughts that we have today on any given issue are probably going to be looked back on as hideously backwards in less than 100 years. So now, if we apply that same standard to 100 years ago to somebody in 1915 or 1920 uh, being raised in that time, uh, their attitudes, even their most enlightened attitudes, are going to come out looking pretty blah by today's standards. But then to follow up on that, there are some very specific quotes from Mr. Tolkien himself on the subject of uh, since the Second World War almost embroiled him as a codebreaker. breaker. Uh, well, of course, it turns out now we know why they didn't end up needing him. Yeah, they they got their paws on the Enigma device. Uh, and had cracked the German codes, and well, like, oh, a lot of we don't people, really
0: need any help. Including crossword puzzle enthusiasts were recruited.
1: Yes, uh, and he wound up not being included. But on the subject, when he attempted to publish something in Germany in the thirties, or was it the either the very end of the nineteen twenties or the dawn of the nineteen thirties? I think it was thirty-two. Uh, they inquired as to his personal heritage, mm-hmm. uh, and he dropped the hammer on them. It's like, uh, you know, uh, there has never been a time when, or what is it, uh, you know, having a German surname has, you know, not been some small source of pride, you know, just like an English surname, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, if you aren't careful about following this line that you're on right now, uh, there will soon come a time where it is a shame to have a German surname, uh, that it will be a thing to be looked on with, you know, no pride at all. Uh, it was a rather stern warning about their anti-Semitism. Uh, and when people inquired about Aryan heritage, uh, his answer was always that you know, that the Nazi fantasism about the purity of some particular heritage was a ludicrous, idiotic fantasy, and that Aryan was really just a reference to a linguistic term for Indo-European language, roots. It's the roots of a language group, not a racial stock. Uh, He had already transcended, you know, because of his extreme literacy and his actual familiarity with these historical subjects. He had already moved past the, you know, crappy racist diatribes that were being espoused by Nazis and, you know, supremacists around the world. Uh, He had already seen the bunk in it, but uh, there were some discussions that described, uh, you know, the... The orcs as having been symbolic of Germans who were referred to as Huns because they were,
0: you know... Militant, warlike, and and always seemed to be bent on domination. Yeah, and
1: the the Hun thing coming because uh, at some point there had been invasion by Asia Mm -hmm. and therefore they were genetically inferior. Uh, I should then point to his defense against the propagandizing against the German people as a yep. race, uh, which he then immediately, you know, turned around as much as he had been opposed to the Nazi propaganda. When the British decided to do the same thing, to characterize the Huns as a vile and loathsome people, uh, he also rejected that very, very clearly. Not not in, like, bandied words like, oh, well, I'm not sure if that's the right thing to do. no. like it is every bit as bad as Goebbels at his worst. Yeah. Uh, That, you know, there is no right uh, inherent to, you know, characterize another people this way. Uh, No matter what. If their crimes had been a hundred times worse, we would still not be justified in doing this. Uh, His opposition was principally rooted in the characterization, characterizing of any people as, you know, completely of no value, dehumanizing them thereby and making it acceptable to treat them with horrible cruelty.
0: Yeah, the men of the East, who were the Corsairs and Reavers, the sea folk, were depicted as cruel and violent, not much different than the Vikings. The Rohem, the writers of Rohan, were uh, more Viking-like, but rode horses instead of crafted ships. Yeah,
1: uh, and... Yeah you really had to be on their right side or they were not very nice people uh, they were not they know. had a
0: code of very different ethics and they had a different way of looking a value of people and they were very set in their ways uh, as well as the Haradrim, the men of the east who were seen somewhat as cruel like the Persians and somewhat militant and were harnessed by Sauron with promises of lands that were taken from them by the Dunedin
1: yeah, in an ancient war, uh, you know, you'll get this land back if uh, you just, you know, sign on with us, uh, which is not a unique circumstance anywhere in the world. That That is true yep. of war and politics planet-wide ever. Uh, the same ripoff, you know, has been used to drag people into uh, tearing apart some other country for millennia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it never ends well. You know, there's another lesson there. <laughs> If somebody comes to you whispering in your ear, like Grimo Wormtongue, uh, telling you how everything is going to work out just great if you go along with their plan, that would be your first warning. Like, oh, huge red flag. Clearly a douchebag.
0: Yeah, and we'd also be remiss we didn't, and we use remiss, we didn't talk about his affection for Robert E. Howard.
1: Oh, yes. He uh, liked his... He was not unaware of the Pulp Fiction emerging around the world.
0: No, he did kind of call it tawdry and somewhat trashy, but... Oh, and it was. It was aimed for
1: American magazine markets that were intended to be
0: taught. But he liked the way that uh, Howard wrote. Oh, his prose was gorgeous. Uh, and the fact that Robert that? used women as uh, central characters, not uh, sexual foils or dalliances for Conan.
1: Yeah, these were not, uh, you know... Crappy romance novels, and this for led men, him basically like low pay. grade porn. You know, yeah. these were not like that. Okay, and I'm not saying that stuff like that didn't exist. There's there's just piles of it out there to be found. But Howard was apart from that crowd. Huh. Yeah, he
0: wrote a couple lurid tales here and there, but not really.
1: I mean, he paid the bills writing what he
0: wrote, but yeah, uh, he knew what sold.
1: You know, but uh, when he was writing something that he was passionate about. He tended to compromise a lot less.
0: Yep. Oh. And, you know, Aowen is doing part to Valeria of the Red Brotherhood. He was rather fond of that character. Yeah.
1: Uh, and if you, you know, that's, that's a little mind-blower right there, is that Tolkien was influenced by Robert E. Howard in some yeah, small degree. In some yeah. small
0: degree. And, you know, he also liked the way that, you know, two-piston action, you know, Robert was very punchy.
1: Yeah, he really knew how to pace an action sequence in a way that kept you engaged, that gave you a feel of being in the room while it happened. Mm-hmm. That is that is a rare actual gift for writers. It's a hard-won trait, because it's, it's easy to describe something. It's not easy to describe it while making it exciting, because at the end of the day, you got to remember somebody is sitting in a chair or wherever, Uh, with a book open reading, and they're in a very passive environment. It's all very quiet. So you have to occupy the space in their mind
0: with that sense
1: of pulse-pounding action. Mm
0: -hmm. That is the challenge. Yep. But uh, Token would go to write first, getting to the books, The Hobbit.
1: Yes. This, it predates things to a much greater degree than a lot of books realize. Uh, The Hobbit... Actually, you know, this is like the early 1930s that this came out. Uh, <laughs> and it, we think of it as a phenomenon that really erupted in the 50s and 60s. Uh, this was making you know, a stir. This was causing people to take note and go, Wow, what is this? Uh, in the world of pulp fiction and early protean fantasy fiction, Here was this marvelous tale of the Hobbit going on an adventure, uh, (laughs) getting effectively shanghaied by a uh, wizard, uh, and dragged along with a large lot of very rowdy dwarves and pulled out of his comfort zone. uh, And here's the important tidbit of the Hobbit. Uh, It's about being out of the comfort zone, where... Adventure really happens, not in your backyard or your living room, you know. It's a thing you hear about from other people most of the time, but real adventure, uh, real excitement is getting completely out of your comfort zone, Right, and And that's when you find out who you really are.
0: Sometimes a wizard knocks at your door, and a group of dwarves show up, ready for dinner, (laughs) expecting to be fed. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, hello, random DM. Yeah, jeez, <laughs> jeez. I just created a Hobbit burglar. Right? I thought he was kind of cool. Well, here you go. Yeah, and of course, you know, in that, uh, the dwarves do their song, which uh, they talk about, you know, caverns deep and treasures of gold and all that. And <laughs> when they're not busy chipping the plates, <laughs> yep. That's what Bilbo, Bilbo bagging tastes. <laughs> and. You know, Bilbo becomes enthralled and wants to go on an adventure. And, of course, he sees the elves in Rivendell.
1: Ah, and it changes everything.
0: Yep, and the trolls. <laughs> and, of course, the whole Icelandic trolls turning to stone during the day, so they had to hide, you know, being lured out. And wow, that was one heck of an argument <laughs> that they had. Lasted all night. And then Gandalf made the sunrise. Hmm. Or fooled them into thinking time was passing at a different pace than they were used to.
1: Yeah, uh, the the subtlety of magic is a nice thing in Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Uh, it's not a thing that usually is explosive and flashy. Like I'm gonna blow a bunch of stuff up. Uh, you know, it's it's whispering into a pine cone until it's lit in flame, so mm-hmm. that you can hurl them at your foes, uh, or you know, the right words to unlock a door.
0: <laughs> Memories of things I do not remember. This place much like my password. To Amazon. I have no memory of this place. <laughs> Count already exists. What's this? No, okay. But... Belloc. Yep. <laughs> but you see also, uh, not just races, but monsters. And, you know, of course, the most famous dragon, I think, of literature is Smaug.
1: Yeah, it has long since overshadowed, uh, you know, St. George and the Dragon. Mm-hmm you know, Smaug has become the archetype of all dragons uh, in fantasy. The the gold-hoarding ancient red.
0: Oh yeah, right out of Beowulf.
1: Yeah, just you know, incredibly powerful, incredibly armored. And cruel. And just uh, contemptuous of everything because after such a lengthy period of time being the most apex predator in the room, why wouldn't you be arrogant? Uh, <laughs> when there's nothing, I no challenge am left to face.
0: Yeah. Whew. Yeah, so uh, also the riddle games with Golem, which he later included the character Golem. Oh, yes. He went back and rewrote him in.
1: Uh, that was a later addition uh, explaining the connection to the Lord of the
0: Rings. Yeah, he wanted to have a symbol of he... the corruption that the ring represented.
1: So it took him almost 20 years. Uh, to finish The Lord of the Rings. I mean... It was in point, well, no, At one point, like, he was going to burn it all. Yeah, well, it was more like 15 or 12 years, but uh, it was a very lengthy period of time to write those three books.
0: Yeah, and he despaired of it and thought it was a burden and then was going to burn it, and his son talked him out of it, which, of course, we're all grateful to, but he made maps uh, needlessly. I mean, there was no uh, antecedent in history or literature that made such things for a fantasy novel. To be included, but here he was creating maps of the pre and the prehistory.
1: Yeah, it was not stuff that was needed, and most publishers would have shied away. Uh, the relative success of The Hobbit, uh, at least as a kind of niche market, curious. Yeah, it
0: was at first uh, kind of put forth as a young adult book. Yeah, and, much um, in the, the the vein of C. S. Lewis and others. Yeah, uh, and it was a little whimsical. And sure. it had its moments, but it also had its dark moments too. I mean, Bilbo seeing the effects of the Five Armies War probably echoes his feelings after the First World War. Well, and Bilbo was no fan of war. And
1: watching Thorin Oakenshield fall under the spell of the Arkenstone, Stone, yeah. you know, a kind of madness afflicted with him that like this is more important than anything, uh, more important than allegiances, than promises, than being faithful to your word. You know, I will transgress against everything I have ever stood for to get this one thing, you know. Or to keep it. And to see a really good person, you know, who's really had a noble cause and has striven hard to get it, fall to this.
0: And all the to original the company of the 12 dwarves, you know, only four survive. And one, you know, Thorin being grievously wounded during this. Yeah. And his apology to Bilbo. Yeah. You know, there's some bittersweet moments for a kids' book, so think about that. But yeah, this is not your typical children's fair. No, and you know, of course, it was a precursor to the Lord of the Rings. Now, uh, also uh, taking back to the dragon, he wrote another novel. What is it? Bomber Giles, of
1: the <laughs> Bomber Giles
0: of Ham. Yeah, that's a great book. <laughs> if you can get that, it's so uh, a little bit more uh, lighthearted, but also uh, his retelling of Saint George and the Dragon.
1: Yes. Uh, you know a, a humble and ordinary person you know uh pulled into great deeds, Yep, a recurring theme for him uh, no i i I guess before we wrap up the guy himself, I should also mention that uh in his writings uh he land both uh you know communist autocrats and fascist mm-hmm. autocrats uh whether it was the communists of spain uh you know, attacking churches and, uh, you know, killing nuns and priests. He was rabidly opposed to that, of course. Uh, but he was also appalled by Stalin. Uh, yeah. Just as many people considered were. him a, you know, nothing but a common murderer. Uh, and likewise, uh, he was greatly displeased and expressed his displeasure with the American decision to use atomic weapons. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, in at the end of
1: the Second World at War. At the end of the Second World War. He considered it, you know, horrifying to unleash that kind of power on civilian populations. It was just wrong in every possible sense. Uh, he had very little patience for anything where mass casualties were inflicted upon people who were not warriors. You know, if you were not in an army and you were not fighting one another, there was really no excusable reason for any harm to be wreaked upon you. Uh, And, you know, he got the concept of simple universal wrongs, that civilians are not, it's inevitable that states come into conflict, but, you know, doing horrible things to, you know, people who are in no way involved in the conflict itself uh, is just horrible. It is wrong, and some things are just always wrong. Wrong. Which again, you know, that's the theologian in him. There was right. a certain rigidity there, and as rigid as he may have well, been a principle, on principle,
0: and I think you know. that that speaks well of him as a person of conscience. Yeah. And so
1: you didn't see him with like an absolute allegiance to something that like could last past terrible transgressions. Like, well, you know, they're doing horrible things, but they're on the right side. Nope. This was not that guy. You know, you could not look to him to support you no matter what. If you if you turned inevitably towards something that was excessively cruel or just wrong, uh, then you know that uh, his support evaporated. Just go wrong. You shouldn't be doing that. Uh, and it is not to say that the guy was out was without flaw. Uh, I'm sure that he had plenty of them, but uh, mean spiritedness was not among them.
0: No, and uh, furthermore, he didn't really like war, and uh, I think that. You know the Battle of the Five Armies. Bilbo is just disgusted with the uh, death and destruction.
1: Oh, all over Rotten. a pile of gold, you mm-hmm. know, just to, like
0: this is what all these there people died of... for. Well, <laughs> the goblins had to come. I'm sorry.
1: Well, okay, you know the, the goblins made of. They were probably going to be jerks about it no matter what happened, but
0: uh... yeah, the men and the elves and the dwarves fighting stopped and they all became allies to fight a common enemy. So that's a kind of one uplifting. And then of course the uh, eagles, the giant eagles and the born, well, then. Yes. The Bear folk.
1: Now, now that we have hit both the man and the books, uh, we should probably wrap this up with the last segment being the direct impact on D&D itself.
0: Yeah, we talked a lot about The Hobbit here, but Lord of the Rings, I mean, it's lengthy, and again, at some point we may revisit this, but the Lord of the Rings did something that few other books did. Now, Elric and Conan were pretty much singular characters. Occasionally they had uh, accomplices and cohorts, but they were pretty much solitary characters. Yes, I know the Eternal Champion of Elric is the, uh, must be accompanied by the Eternal Companion, one of the laws of the hero.
1: Yeah, th- this is you know right out of Moorcock's writings. Which
0: goes than, to Gilgamesh and uh, Ankidu.
1: And, of course... Uh, you know, uh, Pritz Lieber, Marwan uh, yeah. Mythos, Stafford uh, and Grey Mouse you know, there are, it's always two. Uh, you know, the eternal hero and uh, the eternal companion. Uh,
0: but here is a problem facing all of Middle Earth a ring of great power if the enemy is to achieve it and will do everything to get it. And, and- its very presence will corrupt all if it's kept too near. So it must be destroyed. It cannot be kept, it cannot be hidden. So why don't you fly some eagles over Mordor uh, and uh, you know drop it in Volcano Gandalf since he, you know buds with the Eagle Lord? Well, okay, fine. Okay,
1: uh, you know as long as we're there. Okay, this just happened. It just it just got into geek debates. Uh, yeah, the Nazgul, before
0: they blew the place
1: up, if Sauron's at his maximum power and those eagles come flying in there,
0: <coughs> dead birds.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Yep, the Nazgul have their dragons. Yeah. Uh,
1: now of course somebody. Steaks in there, drops the ring in that. Oh,
0: Sauron is. When he's not looking. Yeah. And Oh, crap! Oh, that just happened. <laughs> so, the Fellowship of the Ring is formed an adventuring party of differing characters of abilities and strengths. Yeah. yeah. You have Boromir, who is brave and bold and almost without fear with sword.
1: Yeah. I mean, a, a resolute fighter. Ah. Uh-huh. Uh, Aragorn as a ranger who knows his way around many lands with, uh, you know, certainly with a knowledge of little knowledge of magic, you know, the old magic of Mm -hmm. uh, men and elves. Uh, And... Legolas. Oh, yes. The elves have their representative in the party, too.
0: And Gimli the dwarf. And my axe. And my bow. (laughs) And, of course, the three hobbits. Companions to Frodo. Sam, Mary, and Pippin. Indeed, which again, you know, uh, with
1: Sam unique amongst them, uh, not being a landowner from a well-off family. Uh, Mister Gamgee is just the gardener's kid.
0: Yeah, And also Mary, who seems who is wise and temperate, but also prone to boldness and a little bit of <clears throat> when nobody's looking, or it's all right, a little bit of mischief and. Pippin, well, yes, uh, Pippin is the points deficit of the party. <laughs> uh, uh, Peregrine, son of Took, <laughs>
1: fool of a Took. Yep. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. So you've got uh, this merry band made from many and they different. And go in the mines of Moria. <laughs>
0: And, yeah, you know... It's, it's a big
1: world. Not everything in it is your level. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's right.
1: This one's for Gandalf.
0: Yeah, Just so he can hog all the EPs.
1: Yeah, I know, right? All uh, those sweet Balrog EPs. You, know, they, you know how many levels they could have each... I mean, that was like a two-level jump waiting to happen for those hobbits.
0: Yeah, but if he gets a four-level jump, well, he, you know, now he's the White Wizard, so, yep.
1: Yep. You know, he's, he's uh, dead and born again. <clears throat> you know, he's not immune to a little...
0: Not immune to a little uh, slipping in some Christian mythology in the mix. <laughs> right, but he returns at the turning of the tide. And so that's a great moment uh, in the books. But yes, uh, many concepts that were common to d and D. I I mean, you just didn't see, like in former novels, a large group of characters get together. And then he tells tells a story of after the fellowship dissolves, Boromir being slain, of course. That they continue on their way with Frodo and Sam, making their lonely way with Golem. Oh,
1: um, yeah, Gollum following along behind every, at every step.
0: Uh, but then you but, see, like, Grima Wormtongue represented by uh, Goebbels or Goebbels represented by Grima Wormtongue.
1: Yeah, not a, not a great difference uh, there, okay? The, the power of words to corrupt instead of inspire, mm-hmm. but it, it can bend either way. That uh, that is a, a tree that depends on which way the wind is blowing at the moment. And it, it can blow uh, for ill
0: or for good. And, and uh, you know, the Lord of the Rings did make that kind of clear. The Denethor's mad uh, ramblings and infatuation with the Palantir and staring into it seeing only nothing but gloom and destruction, despair. Uh, you also see Eowyn's heroic stand against the King of the Nazgul. The Witch King.
1: Yeah, but... Uh, I am no man. Yeah, no
0: man Yeah, you know, can Please. strike him down. Well, fortunate for the moment, she's no man. Yeah, but uh, sometimes, you know, it takes a woman. Yeah, but also striking the purging of Theoden from Grima, Wormtongue's poison.
1: Ah, yes. Words.
0: The The
1: exorcism of sorts. Um, mm-hmm. Drawing out the evil spirits. Uh, that have sapped him of his strengths uh, and you know stolen his wits, uh, turned him into a drooling idiot in his own hall,
0: uh, a slave to Saruman.
1: And these wonderful epic narratives, uh, a lot of them have a direct relationship with D and
0: D. Yep, they've uh, all influenced D and D because they are really cool. Now maybe they're trite. Maybe we've been enough. We. Enough time has passed that they become pop culture, and now they're in, we're kind of inured to them. But they have seeped in, and they are part of the culture of D&D. Now, of course, again, we have to say that there are many other influences on Dungeons and & Dragons, and fantasy gaming in general.
1: Oh, sure. But I mean, we've touched on those in the past. And, and
0: Tokens, all idea of a venturing party going forth to take on a task. An epic quest. You know, it's right up there with the Arthurian legends that the companions of the round table would take up arms and go questing to see it done.
1: Yeah, the concept of the questing adventuring party, it has its largest root in Tolkien's writings. Mm -hmm. Uh, And had it not been for that precise time period, uh, exactly the moment that... Uh, that became popular. That was the moment that wargaming started to shift gears. And that is why we kind of owed it this degree of attention. That's right. If, if it were not for that exact uh, blend of spices, you know, all of these things happening at the same moment at the end of the 60s and the dawn of the 70s, we would not be having this discussion now.
0: Right, and so hats off to Professor Tolkien, and the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit and all his other works, as well as many of those who have been inspired by them. So we are nearing our end of our hour-long discourse with you folks. Of course, as always, if you enjoyed what we talked about and enjoyed our 100th episode, we enjoyed having you along for the ride and hope you made it all the way through without falling asleep and drooling on your keyboard or (laughs) into your headset. Um... We, as always, are at your service and beck and call on Facebook page. The Dice are streaming. You can get a hold of us there. Yeah, us we th- are the junk in the trunk of gaming podcasts. Oh. We hope you love it. Oh. we waited <laughs> right to the end for that one. <laughs> and, of course, you can get a hold of us on Twitter at me, at Death Hand Gaming And myself, at Box. That's right. So, we hope you enjoyed the episode, but we're going to wrap it up here as we're reaching the end of our time. But, again, hope you enjoyed, and hope you enjoy the next 100 Podcasts.
1: Yeah, we'll do something
0: this size again, uh, 100 podcasts from now. That's right. So, we're coming up on our anniversary, so we'll be doing a giveaway, so stay tuned for that. And may the the dice dice always roll in your favor. We're out. See ya.